Welcome to another episode of the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin, Coordinator of Communications and Marketing at Oklahoma State University's College of Arts and Sciences. Our guest today is Glenn Krutz, the new Dean of CAS. Glenn came from the University of Oklahoma, where he served as Senior Vice Provost. He is a political science professor whose research fields are political institutions, public policy and administration, and research methods. He's also the Pewterbaugh Foundation Chair. Among the things we discuss are his background, first impressions of OSU, and goals for the college. So Glenn, thank you for joining us for the podcast today. My pleasure to be here. And of course, we also want to welcome you to OSU. What have you thought so far? You've been here a couple weeks now. A couple weeks. I started July 1st. Um, yeah, it's been great. Uh, really, really excited to be here. I've really been impressed with every everything my first couple weeks. Of course, was super impressed while I was interviewing. Uh, everyone was super friendly, but you know sometimes interviews are, are sort of these pizzazz type of things from both directions. So the the, the reality of the first two weeks here have, have have sort of exceeded my expectations for sure. And you know, number one, and this was the case on the interview, everyone is so friendly. Just this sort of relational dimension to OSU is it's really really neat. People, people are nice. They take care of each other. Super friendly. It's less sort of uh, siloed, if you will, mm-hmm. than other other universities. Um, and uh, that friendliness really, really feels good. It, and it's similar in that regard to my doctoral institution. I went to Texas A&M for my doctoral work in the mid to late 1990s, and A&M uh, is or was, and I assume still is, a, a very friendly place. And uh, OSU uh, similarly feels in- incredibly friendly. It's a very relational place. And I can't wait to, to see that. And so I've seen that in the summer now for a couple weeks. I can't wait to see that in play during the fall semester mm. when the students and the faculty are fully back and engaged and sort of feel that. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Another impression is just the dean's office staff. They're the folks I see day in and day out. And they're great. Uh, it's a, so, so lucky to inherit such a good team. They're nice folks. They they do a great job. Um, uh, they're, they're excellent. Um, been very helpful. So I feel really fortunate there. And then the other thing that just you can't help but be impressed by is orange. I mean, mm. Orange orange is everywhere. People are consistent in wearing it. It's on the buildings. It's it's in all the signage. Um, and uh, that's you know schools take their colors seriously, but OSU takes it to, an, to another level. America's brightest orange notion is taken extremely seriously here. And, and so just the visual uh, component of that is, is really an impression, a positive one. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's neat to see. I like, I like uh, this version of orange. I'm not as crazy about burnt orange, uh, <laughs> but uh, this, this uh, flavor of orange is, is really beautiful. Well, and of course, yeah. our listeners can't see that you're wearing your orange tie today. I am indeed, and yes. And you, like almost everyone, you look good in orange. So. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. Got to wear the uniform. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I, I was glad to hear you say that uh, that you found this place friendly. We hear that all the time. And for someone like me, I'm from Stillwater. You know, I've got two degrees here. It's nice to hear that from someone who's who's new and has been to several other universities because sure. you can you can wonder how much of that is us just telling each other this is a friendly place and without much comparison. Absolutely, it's uh, and every place I've been as a as a professor and as a student before that has been friendly, but OSU takes it to another level. Mm. People people are super friendly. Well, and of course, you are the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, I'm sure we have uh, students who are listening who don't really know what a dean mm-hmm. is. Can you explain that? Sure, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Think of OSU, Oklahoma State University, as a, a large enterprise, a university that's composed of different units or colleges. Um, and so a dean is really a CEO, a chief executive officer for a component college. And so OSU has engineering, agriculture, business, human sciences, uh, arts and sciences. Um, and arts and sciences, CAS is the, the largest college by far. And so the dean, as dean of CAS, I'm really the, the CEO of the college um, and really have to to uh, be mindful and, and uh, making sure that the enterprise of CAS is running well in terms of instruction, in terms of research, community engagement, alumni relations, fundraising. Deans really have their hands in everything uh, having to do with the organization. So I think they're more, in a way, similar to a president. 
a university president than to a provost. Mm -hmm. So provost, maybe even a, a less understood term to a student. Yes. Uh, provost, um, or the sometimes called the vice president for academic affairs. The provost is the boss of the deans. And so the academic deans are the CEOs of the colleges, such as CAS. The provost is, is uh, the supervisor of the deans. But provosts tend to stick to academic matters. Um, and so Provost Sandifer, terrific provost to work for, uh, tends to, to delve into matters related to academics specifically. Whereas President Hargis uh, really delves more into uh, aspects with, with fundraising, for example, and where will OSU have a community footprint and things of these nature, these, these more uh, broad, broad notions. Mm -hmm. Deans are similar to, to what President Hargis has to do in that we have to similarly carry on a variety of activities across all the areas. That's how I see a dean position as, as sort of a component CEO of the, of the larger enterprise. Mm. Well, that's a good explanation. I, as I said, I, I know a lot of students. I know when I was an undergrad here, I was sort of vaguely aware who the dean was and that mm -hmm. that was important, but could not have explained it very well. You came here from the University of Oklahoma. How long were you there and, uh, and what did you do there? Sure, yeah, I was at, uh, at OU, the University of Oklahoma, for 17 years. Uh, so got there in 2002 after being at Arizona State University for my first three years as a professor and um, left, left OU a couple weeks ago. So uh, 17 years. Had a, had a great run there, really, a, 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 a good place to be. Uh, I grew up there essentially as an academic when as an assistant professor, left um, as senior vice provost, uh, and uh, had, had, a, had a lot of fun uh, during my years there. Um, I'm a political science professor, so I was hired into the political science department there and taught a variety of classes at all levels of the curriculum, from freshman classes to upper division classes to graduate classes, and supervised several doctoral students while I was there. Um, and so really had, had impact instructionally across all the levels. I also did get pulled into academic leadership and, mm -hmm. and uh, providing public goods, if you will, or common goods for the institution in addition to my professor work. Uh, initially, that was with the Carl Albert Congressional Study Center, the Carl Albert Center it's called, uh, which does civic engagement work, uh, runs internship programs, has a congressional archives. And I was associate director at Carl Albert for, for nearly 10 years and established a few new programs there, and, and that was really enjoyable. And um, then joined the provost office, first as a, in Norman, first as a faculty fellow and then later, in, uh, as a as a vice provost, and so had had a nice had a nice run there, and and uh, worked with terrific faculty faculty and staff, and and got to teach uh, students at all levels. Some some of my favorite moments there uh, would include uh, really really the students. So in, in thinking about more, most recently, I've been teaching the introductory class to thousands of students at OU, and and uh, that's wonderful to have freshmen come take your class and. And, and sort of get into the topics of politics and as they're engaged in the campus. I look forward to doing that here at OSU as well. Upper division classes uh, uh, in my area especially are a lot of fun to teach and there I was able to mentor some pretty outstanding students including five Truman Scholars, so that was a lot of fun. Wow. And then the MPA students, master's level students, taught uh, many of those over the years and they tend to be placed in governmental agencies, nonprofits, tribal, tribal governments in Oklahoma and many are in North Texas. Uh, and I had five doctoral students that I supervised that, that worked under my tutelage to, on their dissertations. So that was probably my most proud aspect of, of my work that I was working with students. And then probably a close second would be my three books. And so it's, it's uh, when you're growing up and you hear about someone writing a book, it's sort of a neat idea to maybe one day write a book. <laughs> and so uh, I found it to be the case where when I was coming out of my graduate program at Texas A&M, I did want to did publish journal articles and, and contribute to the field in that way, but also wanted to, to author some books. And so had uh, all three of my books come out during my, during my time there at OU, and that was a lot of fun. On the administrative side, probably the things I'm most proud of for my work at OU is establishing a program called the Capital Scholars Program in the Carl Albert Center. It's an internship program at the state capitol that's been now running 13 years uh, where OU students carry out internships at the state capitol during the week, take a class in Norman Friday afternoons, usually with guest speakers from state government. And that was a lot of fun to set up. And then our retention work, uh, uh, which I'm excited to contribute to the retention effort here at OSU. Uh, at OU, we uh, worked on retention in a sustained way for, for six years and 
realized three straight uh, freshman classes of 90% freshman retention. So that means that those freshman classes came back for their sophomore year greater than 90%, which is quite an accomplishment uh, for really for any university, but especially for a state university. And retention, of course, is, is a word that uh, those of us, and I'm on, I'm on staff, mm -hmm. of course, there's faculty, we're hearing the word retention over and over. You mm -hmm. just said what that means, but ultimately what we're getting at is we want people to stay here and graduate. We want That's them right. to finish. It's right? persisting, essentially. That's right. So it's student success is really the, the broader term that people use that I, that I prefer, actually. So you have a variety of student success professionals, say, with the Lasso Center here mm -hmm. uh, at OSU that, that work to keep students at OSU. And so they could have a variety of challenges they're facing. Um, could be financial, could be academic factors, could be social, maybe not quite being as well connected as they want to. And these student success professionals do a nice job in helping students um, overcome some of those challenges. Mm -hmm. So it takes a lot of effort. It doesn't just sort of happen overnight to move the retention rate like that. And so I look forward to working with a variety of leaders here at OSU to, to move the needle on retention. And you mentioned three books. Mm -hmm. What are your books about? My first book was about omnibus bills, and so I, I study Congress, I study the presidency and national institutions and policymaking. And when I worked on Capitol Hill, I worked there briefly after college, I noticed as, as the congressional session was coming to a close that these gigantic bills, these omnibus bills they call them, uh, massive packages of many bills together were passed relatively quickly at the end of a session mm -hmm. uh, as time was running out, and that just interested me as a staffer. And so when I was in my graduate program at A&M trying to find a dissertation topic, I looked into the literature to see if anyone had really written about these types of bills or operationalized them even or defined them well, and nobody really had. The literature on congressional productivity really focused on the number of bills passed, um, which seemed to sort of violate what I saw with my eyes, which was, yeah, you got a lot of individual bills passed, but you got these big bills with sometimes 50, 70 bills lumped together. Is mm -hmm. that really the same can you just count those as the same thing? And <laughs> so, I, so I tackled that, that project and, and came up with a definition for omnibus bills, a way to study them and figure out what gets included in them and what doesn't. Uh, they tend to always pass, so the interesting question is what gets attached to an omnibus bill? And so the name of the book was Hitching a Ride. Um, a, if you're a, a legislator in Congress, you see this last train to the station, uh, you want to hitch your, you know, get your bill Hitching a ride in the omnibus was the, the little catchphrase, um, and that that book that book um, uh, was a lot of fun to work on because it, it merged my interest as a congressional staffer in politics with academic research, and, and it, it got a fair amount of play within within the Beltway, as we call it in Washington D.C. of uh, policy-oriented types, policy wonks that thought it was an interesting question and wanted to talk about it. So that's my first book. Uh, my second book was on. Of American foreign policy. So it looks at the relationship between the President and Congress on international agreements. Um, and so the question, interesting question that my co-author Jeff, Jeffrey Peake at Clemson and I tackled, Jeff and I were grad student friends at A&M, Jeff and I tackled the question of why do presidents increasingly, instead of um, codifying an international agreement with another country as a treaty, instead do an executive agreement. Mm -hmm. So like the Iran nuclear deal a few years ago was controversial that Trump has pulled us out of, was done as an executive agreement. So it wasn't sent to the Senate to be considered as a treaty and voted on with a two-thirds majority. Obama just did it. Mm -hmm. um, and over 90% of international agreements the U.S. Struck, strikes today are done in that manner. And so the question we were asking was why did those executive agreements emerge? Why are they used in some cases and not others? And we tackled that. And a neat part of that project happened a few years after the book came out, and that was when John, uh, The Daily Show, John Stewart's staff contacted mm -hmm. Jeff and I, and they wanted to do a story on the Iran nuclear deal, and they wanted to learn about the context and the background. Uh, so we, we taught them about how it works, provided research sources, and, and uh, John Stewart ended up doing two sketches on, the, on, our, on this, this subject. I wouldn't say it was on our book necessarily, it was mm -hmm. on, on this subject. Um, one, uh, one about the executive agreement question with the Iran nuclear deal and one about w war powers. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in one of the sketches, a table from one of our early journal articles was actually in the, in the sketch, which is like, my table. <laughs> so uh, so that, that book got a little bit of play as well, uh, more in the media than among the policy community, uh, whereas the omnibus book, I got a bit more play with practitioners in D.C. Asking, asking about, do I think 
omnibus bills for good or bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with the brand new critique, I just want to know, should it be an executive agreement or a treaty? And we, we tend to try and stay out of that. That's <coughs> for decision makers to decide. And the third book is my open resource uh, book from uh, OpenStax. And so that is uh, American government. So it's OpenStax free textbook for American government. And so uh, that uh, was a lot of fun to work on. That was primarily written in 2016. And, and really, instead of being called the author for that, the proper term is content lead. Mm -hmm. So the way OpenStax works is they select a content lead. Uh, myself for that for that book, and the content lead then works with OpenStax to recruit authors that write the chapters. I, I wrote the foreign policy chapter, and then there were a variety of ex subject matter experts that wrote the chapters of the OpenStax American Government book based on my detailed outline. So I had 15-page detailed outlines for each chapter that the authors then took and wrote. And so that came out in, in uh, 2016. We had a second edition come out earlier earlier this year in 2019. Uh, it's it's had quite an impact on the market. I mean, it's it's free, so students, uh, anyone in the in the world can go to uh, the OpenStax website and, and download the PDF for free. It's there's there's no cost, and uh, so that was a lot of fun to write. And that writing that really resulted from me wanting to provide a low cost book alternative for my students in my large introductory government class. Every semester I've taught, I've had students come up and say, "I'm short on money. Mm, I can't yeah. afford your book." you have extra copies? And I had heard about OpenStax and their model, and I kept bugging them to, to, to write one on American government. And, and finally, they were like, we'd like to, to do this. Can you help us? <laughs> they said, we know just the guy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So and that was a lot of fun. And, and, uh, and so the, the chapter authors were, that are all listed in the front of the book were, were incredible to work with. And there's an editor, Sylvie Waskowitz, uh, who, who had a, a central role in the book as well. Yeah, so that's a lot of fun. It feels really good to have that out in the market and knowing mm -hmm. that it's, I don't know what percentage of the market's getting, but it's, it's significant. And, and uh, so that's students that are benefiting from that. Well, yeah. and you mentioned the model. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you're not getting rich off any academic book, but oh. how does that work? How do, you, how do they make it worth your time for you to write that? Right, you mean the open, open? Yeah, the open stacks. Yeah, the OER book. The way that they, yeah, there are no royalties for the book when it's sold because it's not sold, it's free. Um, so the cost to produce the book, book in the first place, um, there, there, there were small stipends that I received and the chapter authors received, but nothing like book authors receive. I, I have some friends who are book authors and they, they make pretty good money. <laughs> uh, some, some stipend money to, to initially put the project together, that money is provided by, uh, by donors. And mm. so OpenStax, it's all listed on their website out of Rice University, but uh, Bill Gates, Hewlett Packard, many other funders have helped them fund that model. Mm. Uh, they, they feel strongly that free books uh, in the collegiate marketplace would be good for accessibility and, 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 and so forth. And, and uh, so that's the, the way that it tends to work. I don't know if you know the answer to this, and it may be too early, but is that the future of textbooks? Are you expecting to see more of this type of thing instead of, I mean, sure. we, we all know, having been students, that textbooks are very expensive. Mm -hmm. They are, yeah. The um, you know I have three children. Just my youngest is still in, in her undergraduate studies, but my children's book costs per, per semester today are more than my total costs mm -hmm. for college back in the '80s. So you're absolutely right that book costs have just gone out, out of control. I do think for large classes, uh, the OpenStax model will continue to be successful. They'll be, they'll be able to uh, really scale up their offerings to all introductory subjects and mm -hmm. have large enrollments. I think it's going to be tougher to have open educational resource options in smaller classes. Yeah, I'm just not sure that the model will work there. The, the, for it to work, it would require scholars just out of the goodness of their heart to, to write free textbooks and put them up online. At that point, you worry a bit about quality control. The nice thing about open, OpenStax is everything's peer-reviewed. Mm. There was even a fact checker that checked all the footnotes and everything in the book. I do think it's the wave of the future, but I, but I think there is sort of a a ceiling on, on how much it'll be adopted. So I think they'll continue to be a, a private book, mar book market for those other classes. But if, if, if open educational resources can put pressure on the, the private market, maybe costs will, will stay down a bit. Uh, and you mentioned earlier um, that you worked in D.C. I did. Can, can you talk about that experience? Sure, yeah. Um, I worked um, for one of the U.S. Senators from my home state of Nevada, um, uh, Richard Bryan. Uh, Richard Bryan had been the governor of Nevada before he was a U.S. Senator, and I volunteered on his um, U.S. Senate 
campaign. And then I got to know him a little bit as he made visits to campus. I was super involved in student leadership activities at the University of Adarino, my undergraduate alma mater, also a land-grant institution. Got to know several of the sort of VIPs, if you will, of the university as they would visit, including Senator Bryan. And before that, Governor Bryan had met him as, as governor. And he had a staff position come up, uh, open in his office, uh, middle of my senior year, and called and offered me the job. So uh, at the end of end of May, I guess, uh, after I graduated my undergraduate, I moved back to D.C. as a, as a staff, full-time staff member and was initially, uh, you know, on the phones, answering the phones, and <laughs> then slowly got to do some legislative correspondence work where you specialize in certain policy areas and do research on, on the senator's position and different bills that are in play. My areas were environmental policy and um, foreign policy or State Department matters specifically, uh, and Postal Service topics, there weren't too many things on that. <laughs> but you, you don't always get the sexy issues, right? right I mean, you right. get, you get uh, with environmental and, and foreign policy, I consider myself pretty lucky. And, and so the occasional letters that came in from constituents about postal stamp, like stamp increases weren't all that hard uh, to deal with. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the personal office of a, of a U.S. Senator is really a constituency shop where you're there to interface with, the, with, with voters and with groups from, from Nevada, from the state. Um, it's a representational type of office. Mm -hmm. uh, had I been a staff member over in the committee system, that's uh, a more policy-oriented, substantive type of staff experience. But it was terrific. It was great to see the inside of politics. At that time, I was still thinking about going into politics mm -hmm. myself. It was one of the many things that I experienced that led me to not go into politics. Not that I was negative about the experience. I, I loved it and loved the people I worked with and thought people in D.C. were, were trying to do the right thing and, mm -hmm. and, and really had their hearts and, and their, their sort of ethics in the right place, was very impressed with the system, and, but just didn't think the sort of electoral career was, was for me. Mm -hmm. and so I moved back home to Nevada and worked for a couple of years in the state chancellor's office, uh, sort of the state system office for higher education, sort of a state government office. And uh, while I was doing that, I got my MPA degree, Master of Public Administration, also from the University of Adarino. While getting my MPA, uh, did some research with a professor on uh, environmental policy, on water policy in northern Nevada, and really got pulled into the idea of maybe I could be a professor mm. uh, in political science as well. Uh, so it, so it, uh, my career ended up merging my interest in politics with my interest in teaching and university life and research. And we ended, ended up publishing an article, my first publications on, on water policy in northern Nevada, and then decided uh, to, to move to a full-time doctoral program at Texas A&M to, to get my doctorate. Yeah, but yeah, DC experience was terrific. Uh, yeah, it, um, I still give examples in class when I teach from that from that experience. You're saying, uh, in your experience, generally the people working in DC are good people. Um, it's it's not a it's not a swamp. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> great people in DC. Um, you know, DC is a place. You know, the institutions, the people that work there, the the wonderful geography of. DC, we should be proud of it. Uh, and um, to, to, to drive that point home, because students do come into universities these days a little bit cynical, yeah. know, kind of with partisan baggage, to be honest. Yeah. And to, to drive that point home, you know, I, I relate my experience in DC to the, the show House of Cards. Mm -hmm. uh, that show, uh, no longer on TV, <laughs> but it was very popular and showed a bunch of very slimy people working each other over in politics. And yeah. And you know, maybe 5% of the people I interacted with in D.C. were sort of overly strategic like that, but lion's share, over 90% of the people I worked with were good people that wanted to do the right thing and help serve their country. And, and uh, I, I'm certain that's still the, the same case today, even if it is, it is a bit more divided on partisan lines than when I was there. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I like to think uh, that Public service and community service politics are all sort of the same thing. Mm -hmm. That, that uh, good-hearted folks with a servant's ethic ought to think about going into politics, uh, for sure. And you were talking a minute ago about your, your MPA. Yes. And it sounds like you were pursuing that before you thought you would go into a career as an academic. That's right, yeah. Uh, yes. That that's interesting to me. Uh, when someone becomes a dean, I think from the outside we all go, "Well, this is someone who set out to become a dean." Um, not the case. And in fact, uh, I understand you were a first-generation college student. First, 
generation college graduate. Okay. And so okay. Uh, my dad went to uh, junior college, uh, did an associate's. My mom tried a couple four-year colleges, mm. uh, didn't didn't quite get through them, and uh, but yeah, first generation college graduate. So and uh, so, my siblings and I um, all all graduated from University of Reno and have all been able to do really good things because of that experience mm. and you know the transformative dimension of going to and completing college. You mentioned earlier you were thinking you might go into politics. You decided that's not what you wanted to do. Right. But you, I'm sure you didn't as a child go, I want to be a dean. Um, so when did you make that transition to, I want to be a professor, I want to be an academic, now you're an administrator? It is, it is the case, or it wasn't the case, rather, that, <laughs> that I, as a, as a youngster, uh, when others are saying, I want to be an astronaut, that I said, <laughs> hey, I want to be a dean. Yeah. Uh, but th there was sort of a transfer, there was a transformation, really, after I got back from Washington, I was in Reno working um, at the state chancellor's office for the, the regent staff there. At that point, I, I still was thinking of politics. I was even thinking about which offices I might run for, mm -hmm. maybe in my late 20s or something. Um, and I wanted to, to get a master's degree. Um, and the, the MPA, Master of Public Administration, uh, is, a, is a pretty useful degree for folks that want to work in public service. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as opposed to, say, an MA in political science, uh, which might be a touch more theoretical and more research-oriented. The MPA, you get a bit more of an applied set of classes and experiences. And in fact, I did an internship during that program. So I, I was working at the state regent's office, getting my MPA. So I'm interacting with faculty. One of them invited me to do some research. Um, and then in working at the state regent's office uh, there in, in Nevada, interact with the faculty senate chairs from the different universities and community colleges. So I began to interact with them, ask them about their jobs, and, and they began to sort of drop subtle hints of, you know, you'd be a pretty good professor, and, and uh, you know, you'd be a good teacher for this reason, a good researcher maybe for this reason, um, and the sabbaticals are nice, you know, you, might, <laughs> you, might, you know, uh, it's, it's a pretty nice uh, lifestyle, um, and, um, um, and so, so through all those processes, I, I guess when I was a really thinking seriously about applying was you know, about uh, 92, 93, so a couple years after undergrad. And Julie and I went around and, and, and investigated different programs. And then I applied. And, and the nice thing about doctoral programs is you can get an assistantship and, and uh, provides a little bit of income and, mm -hmm. and, and can provide a, a, a reduction in your tuition and fees. And, and so it was, it was doable uh, financially. And so we, uh, we, we looked at Texas A&M. University of Iowa in Iowa City and then Ohio State. Those were the three uh, places we looked at. We liked, really liked Texas A&M, and I got a, got a good package there, so we moved off to A&M. Julie ended up also going to school there and getting a master's um, at A&M, so we're both graduates of Nevada, University of Nevada, Reno, mm -hmm. to land grant in Texas A&M, which is a land grant. Right, so once, once we were off to Texas, I, I knew I wanted to be a professor. And so the decision had been made. But yeah, there was sort of, I, I don't know if there was a particular day when I said, woke up in the morning and said, I want to be a professor. <laughs> and then, yeah, the, the, the transformation or, or evolution, if you will, from professor to administrator uh, ha happened a little bit later. Um, a lot of people thought when I left the chancellor's office in Nevada to get my PhD that I'd be on the administrative track pretty early on. Mm -hmm. But I, to be honest, I, I so love being a professor and what a professor does in the classroom and with their research that I, you know, I spent many years uh, assuming I would not get into upper administration. Mm. And then just gradually got interested in it and, and thought I could have an impact and, and uh, make a mark, uh, first in the provost office there in Carl Albert Center at OU, and now, now here at OSU. And uh, you've mentioned a few times that being a professor and how much you've enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. Will you be able to, in this role, will you be able to teach? Will you still be conducting research? Yes and yes. Very important to me to, 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 to keep teaching. And mm. so it's my intent to teach every semester. Wow. Perhaps not this first semester, though. So I'm going to need to uh, settle in. It's a pretty steep learning curve as an administrator. Yeah. So I'm thinking right now this first fall I won't as I settle in and learn the lay of the land at, in Stillwater and OSU. But it's my intention to begin in spring of 2020 teaching every semester. Probably a mix of classes. Uh, the last few years at, at OU, I taught the big introductory classes a ton, mm -hmm. thousands of students loved it, and I'd like to do that as well. But my, maybe not every semester. Mm. Maybe maybe have a mix of classes. And so I'll talk with uh, 
with the political science department here, with the department head Farida about that, and uh, it'd be nice to occasionally teach a class at OSU Tulsa. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that'd be possible. I've also done quite a bit of online teaching, online teaching, online class design uh, there in Norman, and, and so that might might be a possibility as well. I, I think it's super important for a dean and, and upper administrators to stay connected to the the core craft of university life, which is teaching and, and research. Research is going to continue. Um, to be honest, it's it's not uh, taking up as much of my time as it did say maybe ten years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, my uh, colleague at, at OU uh, for many years, uh, Keith Gaddy, uh, political science there, and I have a project on Congress, uh, tentatively titled "Congress and the Failure to Engage," mm-hmm. uh, that looks at the ways in recent years that Congress has failed to engage each other, to engage other institutions, to engage their the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a pretty normative book that's critical of Congress and suggests reforms for how Congress could do its work better. Mm. And uh, so we've been working on that. So that'll continue um, into the future as well. What would you say are your areas of research expertise? Sure. Yeah, I, I study and teach about uh, American national institutions, so Congress and the presidency, also the bureaucracy, and public policy. So public policy gets its substantive notions of specific issue areas. and so. If you get, and I've found in my teaching that if students come into a class with that cynicism I described before, mm-hmm. with their partisan loyalties sort of obviously out on their sleeves, that to get them having productive dialogue with one another, the best thing to do is to talk about specific issues one at a time. And so instead of talking about broad ideological matters of the left and the right and the, uh, the parties, you talk specifically about, okay, we've got a childhood obesity epidemic in mm-hmm. Oklahoma, what do we do about it? Right. And then you focus on the problem, the degree of the problem, what solutions might help fix it. You can sort of get around the partisan mm-hmm. problem and, and talk about things honestly. And so um, that's something that actually needs to happen more in Congress. It needs to happen uh, more, in, more in communities. And uh, uh, yeah, it's very important to me. Why were you interested in coming to OSU? Sure, yeah, I really, to be honest, wasn't, wasn't looking, uh, looking to leave. I had a lot of good things going for me at OU. I was nominated by a colleague mm-hmm. uh, for the position. Uh, when they have searches, national searches for deans, uh, the job announcement usually some, some of the lines of, you know, send your application materials here, or if you'd like to nominate someone, send the name here. And so someone nominated me, and, and um, uh, the search consultant, a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Dan uh, Walters uh, from Bufkin Baker, uh, terrific young man, uh, who I look forward to continuing to interact with over the years, uh, really, really nice guy, just kept contacting me. And, <laughs> and uh, it clearly was not going to go away until I called him back. And, and so I said, okay, I'll just call him back and talk to him. And, and uh, he just, just was really persuasive in describing the opportunity here to have an impact in, in a way that, that all the things I've been talking about that, that really excite me about university life, I'm going to have my hands in here mm-hmm. as dean of, of CAS. Uh, and so all, all my passions. That, that really pulled me in to, to go ahead and put my hat in the ring. And then, you know, and then the first round interviews, so these dean searches, uh, maybe more than you want to know here, but these dean searches have different uh, stages of screening the applicant pool. And there was a first stage hour-long interview in Oklahoma City with the search committee. Uh, so you kind of come in and sit in the hot seat and the committee's got you for an hour. And <laughs> it's really enjoyable discussion. I mean, the questions were great. Um, kind of back and forth and follow-ups and I got to ask some questions at the end that I, I love the answers to from the committee and and uh, at that point I said okay you know if they are interested I'm gonna go ahead and, and go do the interview and, and, and give this a go yeah campus interview was a lot of fun the end of January early February and and then was actually on a spring break trip uh, in March when uh, Provost Sandifer called to offer me the job mm. nice yeah. I'm seeing a theme here by the way this is I think at least the third time you've talked about other people telling you this this would be something you'd be good at. It was the textbook, the open source book. Uh-huh. It was the uh, uh, the going into becoming a professor. Now the deanship really seems like other people see something in you, you and go, you should pursue this. And you're smart enough to listen, I guess. Yeah, I'm a good listener. <laughs> yeah, I've, I have had a lot of really terrific advisors over the years that that I that I you know listen and take their advice to heart. So advisors in grad school at A&M, family and friends in Reno, as Julie and I were considering moving away, 
there were some that thought that was pretty crazy to mm -hmm. take our six-month-old and move to Texas and give up good jobs. Uh, but uh, you know, others that gave us good advice. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's definitely a theme where I'll, I'll I'll listen to folks about about suggestions and and uh, I'm I'm sort of amenable, but but I you know, I do there's sort of a core that I, I'm not not too bendable, I guess mm -hmm. is, is the thing <laughs> I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah. And we don't want to get. Uh, too much into the weeds here, but what sure. are what are your main goals for CAS? What would you like to accomplish? Right. Well, the, the there's there's sort of two ways to, to get it. Get this one sort of in a general way. I'd like to improve student success. Have more students coming and choosing CAS and staying at OSU. I'd like to have uh, improved faculty impact. Faculty impact meaning uh, faculty excellence. So the recruiting and retaining really top faculty. Um, mm -hmm. Having them make more of an impact in the classroom and in the research labs and in the, the studios um, and with their creative activity. Um, and then in, improve and increase the amount of community engagement we have. Outreach component of CAS, uh, I'd like to see. We're doing great things, but, but do, do even more. All of those things, that what, what makes CAS pretty unique is, is the opportunities for depth that CAS provides. Mm -hmm. And I actually hit on this in my presentation during the interview that, that uh, the unique aspect of an institution like CAS, the College of Arts and Sciences at, at Land-Grant University, Oklahoma State University, is to provide depth. And so CAS provides depth to the students that are being taught through CAS, uh, provides depth through the research that faculty are doing, it provides depth through community engagement, provides depth for all of OSU in terms of critical thinking skills mm -hmm. and wondering what our place is in the world in a way that um, is just unique. Uh, it actually ties back pretty nicely to to Justin Morrill and the uh, origin of the land-grant movement. Representative Morrill, when he proposed a land-grant system, didn't just want it to be agriculture mechanical. He really wanted there to be a classical dimension to it, uh, critical thinking, a grounding in uh, the essential natures of, of humanity and, and living in the modern world um, that, that that added depth to the land grant experience. Uh, he didn't. He wanted to have a situation where students in the heartland did not have to go to the coasts to get this high quality education. One created in every state, but it wasn't simply uh, um, the the applied aspects of agriculture, and mechanical arts. He also wanted to be the classical offerings uh, mm -hmm. in in the in these land grant institutions, and he was quite forceful in the late nineteenth century. Um, as the land-grant trust fund was maturing and about to be spent, that the funds could be used for broader notions than land-grant institutions, including these classical studies. So, mm -hmm. so right there in the founding and early establishment of land-grants and, um, and such uh, is the origins of CAS and the arts and sciences and their importance uh, to, to the university. That depth, uh, the, the things that students learn in our classes about where they belong in the world and, and what it all means uh, goes beyond subject matter expertise to mm -hmm. to uh, ability to uh, think critically, ability to help run institutions and get along with others that we really need today in the world. Absolutely. Uh, and one other thing you hit on in that presentation you talked about, is college worth it? Right. Of course, we know it's more expensive than it's ever been. That's right. Is it still a good yeah. investment? It really is. I mean, the data the data are, are there to show that getting a bachelor's degree leads to a huge return on investment for someone mm. uh, to make more in their, their lifetime, to have more opportunities professionally, to have a higher quality of life. It's all there in the data. It's especially the case if you also get a master's degree. Mm -hmm. uh, so we will be pursuing in CAS, making sure we have robust offerings at the master's level uh, because the data are even more persuasive there if you get a master's degree. Uh, the quality of life you'll enjoy, the income you'll make is many factors higher than the bachelor's. But the, the big sort of sea change for a person mm -hmm. is to get that bachelor's degree. Um, and so uh, that helps us understand the importance of going to college in general, maybe coming to OSU in general. Mm -hmm. What those surveys about the, the value of higher ed also show is that what employers really want beyond the degree is the ability to have those soft skills. Mm -hmm. And that's where CAS comes in. And so um, most students at OSU take their introductory classes with CAS. Right. And so learning through their gen ed uh, classes, learning through writing classes, mm -hmm. uh, these basic aspects of where, where do I belong in the world and how do things work together and why are we here, 
helps a person to think critically once they're in an institution and they have a job, uh, to be a leader, to move up. The soft skills, uh, survey after survey of hiring officials in, in companies and government and nonprofits talk about that, that, that they wish students were better qualified in, the, in those regards mm -hmm. when they come out of the academy. And CAS, I mean, CAS is really the uh, ground zero for that, so to speak, to provide those soft skills. So, yes, yeah, students need to, to get college degrees, bachelor's and master's, and they also need to have experience in CAS to have that depth and be able to have an impact later. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure most people don't realize it's over 49% of the credit hours at OSU are in CAS. That's right. All of your prereqs are here, almost with without exception, whatever you're going to major in, you're going to be in CAS until you get right. into your upper level courses. That's right, and then and then the number of students that stay with us upper level for their major, you know, we're the largest in the yeah. in the university. Absolutely, so huge impact. Um, that's such an important part of of Oklahoma State. I also tell people when you're talking about um, is college worth it. I tell people I've never heard anyone say they regretted their education. I've occasionally heard people say, I wish I'd studied this or that instead. Sure, sure. But I've never heard anyone say, yeah, boy, that was a bad idea going to college. When I got that degree, you know, 50 years ago, my life's been terrible ever since. Right. Nobody's ever said that. It's true. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And the nice thing about a college degree is once you have it, it can't be taken away. That's right. You can make money and lose money. You can um, have relationships go awry. That college degree is always going to be there. Yeah. Now, I know also when they announced your hiring, um, you were also named the Pewterbaugh Foundation Chair. First, I'm sure we have some listeners who don't know what a, say, an endowed faculty chair is. Can you explain sure. that? Yeah, a chaired professorship is it's an, quite an honor. I'm, I'm, I'm just beside myself that mm -hmm. I have an endowed chair. Um, endowed chair professorships come with an endowment. An endowment, by definition, is a a massed amount of money uh, that itself is not spent, but the interest from it each year uh, can be used for different purposes. So an endowed chair, in this case the Pewterbaugh Foundation chair, has a certain amount of money in endowment. There's interest each year that's, you, that's, that's drawn from that endowment that I can spend on a variety of public purposes mm -hmm. uh, that relate to uh, the College of Arts and Sciences. And the, that's exciting to have, to have some discretionary money to do good things that provide public goods, be it in the teaching area, research area, community engagement. Uh, really excited about that. The Pewterbaws, by the way, are a family uh, from McAllister, Oklahoma, southeastern Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Jay Pewterbaugh was uh, uh, very successful in the business, business world and set up this foundation to support a variety of purposes, including uh, medicine, education, and the sciences. Uh, but he had a real passion for the liberal arts, mm -hmm. a real passion for foreign languages, a real passion for international travel. And so I'm going to try and learn a bit more about what Jay Pewterbaugh had a passion for mm -hmm. as I decide um, how, to, how to, to, to spend those funds each year. But it's really exciting to have, have those and to uh, can really add additional impact to some of the programs we're carrying out in, in CAST. I think sometimes people hear about the concept of a chair and they hear about this funding that comes every year and in their mind they go, oh, so that's like extra salary. Well, some of it uh, sometimes is that, but it's more than that, right? You'll be able to do more with that than just go into your pocket. I know in some cases, right. chairs mm -hmm. and professorships, it funds graduate assistance for research projects or right. travel to conferences, things like that. That's right, yeah, so uh, depending on the arrangement when the endowed chairs is set up, it can, the money can be used for a variety of purposes when the interest is drawn down each year. Uh, the the Pewterbaugh chair, I have to use it for public purposes. Mm -hmm. I cannot pay myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that's terrific. Uh, there are some chairs where it does provide uh, a top off to the chairholder in terms of salary plus some, maybe some research money and mm -hmm. some outreach money. Just depends on the particular arrangement that the, the donor makes. Most chairs have a sizable component, if not a majority, that goes to funding some activity mm -hmm. rather, rather than rather than the salary. But it really depends on how it's negotiated. It's pretty open to what the donor would like to see, so long as it's legal. Right, uh, right. There actually is a state program through the state legislature in Oklahoma to match all of those, uh, but it's uh, the funds have been running short for many years. So there's a long list of endowed chairs from from OSU and indeed from OU to try and get that state match. But that's that's probably a 
probably a ways off. Yeah, and I worked at the OSU Foundation for nine years, and they would love uh, for me to plug them there and say, if you're interested in supporting an endowed chair, they, they will be happy to help you. Uh, but I would tell people when they would ask me about chairs, I would say, well, it's a bit like a scholarship for a faculty member. You put the money in a savings account, and what it produces goes to that faculty member for these various purposes like we were talking about. And the, the initial endowment stays there in mm -hmm. perpetuity. Right. So it's always supporting someone like you can do with a scholarship, which sure. I think is wonderful. Absolutely. And that's a nice, a nice analogy there with, with scholarships for students because they are, there is some underlying purpose. And you know, at OSU, the endowed chairs tend to go to star faculty that mm -hmm. you really, really think are high impact faculty that you want to keep, or maybe you use the endowed chair to recruit them in the first place. So they're critical. So any, any donors listening, I would love to have uh, at least one endowed chair, many endowed chairs mm -hmm. in each of the cast departments uh, to really to really be able to go after star faculty or retain star faculty we already have who were in danger of losing to other institutions when they, when they do such a nice job in the classroom and with their research. I know I've talked to some faculty members who have chairs and a lot of times they will say like it's the affirmation of having that title that really is it's nice for them to have the funding, but to be able to say, I am the Peterbaugh chair, right. that means so much to them. And that is very helpful in retaining your best faculty or sure. attracting a great person to an open position. Absolutely, I agree. And speaking of scholarships and donors, um, I know scholarships are something that uh, are important to you. They are, yeah. I, um, I personally was able to, to go, go to college and get through college in part on scholarships and part on working and uh, feel feel really strongly as tuition and fees have increased really exponentially the last 20 years, 25 years, uh, that scholarship donations and, and the existence of scholarships for students are, are just so important. They, mm -hmm. they make higher ed accessible, OSU accessible to students that otherwise wouldn't be able to come here. It's also important to have scholarships to attract the best students, say the merit-based scholarships. Mm -hmm. I'm really, though, Merit-based scholarships have been around forever, and people realize their benefits. The need-based scholarships that I really have a passion for, and so need-based scholarships can help get a student to OSU that otherwise wouldn't be able to come here. Mm -hmm. They maybe help us keep a student that's here and doing well, but suddenly can't afford it. There's a, f a family financial crisis or something. If we had a need-based scholarship account uh, for rescue scholarships for those kind of emergencies, we could maybe that might help increase our retention rate, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and so scholarships are, are just hugely important, both the merit-based kind as well as the need-based kind, and improving access to higher ed and improving retention. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at OU, in our retention work there, uh, we relied heavily on, on retention scholarships. Uh, we called them invest in success scholarships. Mm. And, I, and I know for, for a fact there were uh, many, many students there that would have left had we not helped them in that, in that bind. And then we had a little analysis that showed as they s sustained or persisted at OU and then graduated, we made back the value of that scholarship plus mm -hmm. factor of two more. Uh, so they're, they're a good investment. Uh, return on investment for need-based aid is, is definitely there. Well, and it also is related to the land-grant mission, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, Absolutely. We need a good university here and people able to attend it and graduate and make a better life for themselves. That's right. That I, I love that personally. Yeah, I love absolutely. the idea that if you're willing to work hard enough, right. you, you can get a degree. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think the land grants have an a, a important responsibility mm -hmm. in, 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 in making sure that a quality flagship higher education experience is available for everyone. Um, and, and you see that in the, in the student body here at OSU. Uh, OSU has a higher percentage of Pell Grant recipients, mm. for example, mm -hmm. which is a need-based uh, uh, grant, not a loan, but a grant mm -hmm. from the federal government uh, based on family income uh, than, than other, other institutions. And that's, I think that's great. That's, that's, that means that OSU is accessible to people mm -hmm. and uh, would love to, for us to focus on making sure that that Pell Grant recipient retention rate is, is doing good things mm -hmm. at OSU. We've talked about the value of quality instruction, uh, but how important is great research at CAS? You know, one of the unique aspects of CAS and of OSU in general is you've got terrific professors here that 
you'll experience in the classroom that are just doing remarkable research. That's one of the things we can do a better job telling our story of, is all the neat things happening um, with professors in terms of their research. And, and the beautiful thing about Oklahoma State University is a student can come to OSU and be in a classroom with a professor who's a really good instructor and is bringing their own research into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And the students there are giving feedback on this sort of active research that the professor that can then take and improve based on the student's input. Um, mm -hmm. And that's pretty magical. I mean, if you go to a college where the faculty are, are less research-oriented, you will not get that. Mm -hmm. you, you might get a person that's read the literature and knows it well, but there's something special about an active researcher in the classroom talking to students that's, that's really powerful. And, and uh, there's just tons of good research going on in CAS. Um, and uh, I'm excited about that dimension of, of my dean's work, working with the departments and the schools to, to carve out, maybe over the next couple of years, a collection of thematic areas that we really try and go to the next level on. We can't be great at everything. Uh, in CAS, we want to be really good at lots of things. Mm -hmm. But in terms of picking our, our areas to really uh, go to the next level, I'm excited to, to sort of see what those thematic areas might be. It'll, it'll, it'll bubble out from the interest of the faculty and the interest of the students mm -hmm. and what's important to society, but uh, that's something I'm excited to work, work on as well. I'd like to thank Dean Glenn Krutz for joining me and sharing such thoughtful insights while he's so busy getting acclimated to the extremely important position of leading OSU's biggest college. And with that, we end the episode as we always do, asking how the arts and sciences are making the world a better place. The arts and sciences, and CAS in particular at OSU, is making the world a better place in a variety of ways. One of those ways is provi providing this depth that I've been talking about mm -hmm. today. And so the depth that students receive in having a CAS experience makes them more impactful citizens, more impactful employees, more impactful community leaders uh, when they go out into the world, more successful, in fact. Uh, hopefully there's a return on investment for OSU in, in terms of appreciation of the institution for the experiences they had here in CAS and that, and that depth. The arts and sciences literally in our subject matter areas and the research being done by professors makes the world a better place. Our community engagement, uh, our outreach activities uh, from, from CAS are making the world a better place uh, and providing the community with answers and, and solutions to critical problems. So you, you definitely have that as well. That soft skills piece I talked about before uh, is important. Uh, the existence of CAS at an excellent land-grant university like OSU, the existence of the arts and sciences in general in society provides um, a framework for people to understand their surroundings, to understand the importance of protecting the environment, of, of protecting um, um, families, uh, providing services, working together with other countries to to govern the world peacefully. Uh, these types, types of soft skills are just so important in, in making the world go round. And so both in terms of the orientation that people get from CAS, that depth, as well as specific products that CAS faculty and the, the units provide, making a huge difference.